0: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 7.
1: Let's do something radical. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you that you have brought Each of us to this point in time, we pray that your purpose would be accomplished in each of our lives as we face the horizon before us. And we thank you, Father, for this opportunity to delve into your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would just open your word to our hearts and lives, that through all of this, we might behold our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do pray, Father, that you would just help each of us to grow in grace in the knowledge of him. In whose name we do pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing our survey or exploration of the epistle to the Hebrews. And we're in the 8th section in chapter 7. And most of you recall that the first part of this epistle is really uh, Christology. Uh, Jesus Christ, the new and better deliverer. And the writer contrasts our Messiah with all of Jude- the traditional Killers of Judaism, the angels, Moses, Aaron, and so forth. Last time we entered um, this area of how, how Jesus is a priest better than the Levitical priest, the Aaron, Aaronic priesthood. And uh, But chapter 5 had a problem because it really bridges to chapter 6, which includes w- the third of five warnings. In fact, it's the most troublesome of the five warnings to many. And I won't try to recap all of that here. But uh, we um, got that introduced with our study of chapter 5, and then we really dealt with it in chapter 6. Basically highlighting the fact that the issue at stake is not uh, eternal security, as it may look to the naive viewer. But rather, uh, the gaining of inheritance. All of this keying off, of course, uh, Numbers 13 and 14, and uh, uh, Psalm 95. Both of which are quoted in depth and uh, dealt with that time. But now, but uh, having finished last time uh, the whole issue of uh, 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 chapter 6, we are now entering chapter 7, and the focus in chapter 7 is going to be a lot easier to deal with the, uh, than the ones we've dealt with so far. You know, we've really, in the last several chapters, let me just acknowledge that we've really been dealing with some very difficult, complex Heavy material. And uh, hopefully it's been stimulating you to do serious study in those areas. But we're actually going to move now into an area that I think at least is clearer in its description. And that's this whole issue of who is this character called Melchizedek. Because uh, back in chapter 6 as it was finishing, one of the final verses was, Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, he was made a high priest, forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a character that shows up in a couple of verses in Genesis 14. And if it wasn't for a single reference to this in Psalm 110 it would probably disappear into oblivion except we're to discover there's several full chapters in this epistle dealing with this strange character, Melchizedek. And so By mentioning Melchizedek, when we close chapter 6, that was actually an echo of an earlier mention in chapter 5. He's been hinted at now twice. We're going to jump in now and get into this. And uh, I want to remind you, though, when we were in chapter 5, chapter before last, the writer spent a lot of time saying to his readers, you're not ready for this. He talked about the milk and the meat of the word and, 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 and chastised them for just not, for being babes in the word and not ready for the material that's coming. And the material he was talking about is what we're now going to get into. And so we should be ready for that. But he, again, all the way through this epistle, from front to back, the primary theme is to encourage the listeners, the readers, to press on to maturity. The issue is not salvation. Yeah, not in the in the sense of justification. Again and again and again, he puts himself in the same camp. Let us, let us, let us. He, the, the readers are in the same spiritual condition he's in, in the sense of being justified by Jesus Christ, 100 percent by what he's done. But what he's arguing for them to do is go from there on to maturity, and that's what the real theme is here. So now we we we've had Melchizedek alluded to rather cryptically twice. Now we're going to get into it, and that's what this chapter is all about. Chapter 7 is really about Melchizedek. So here the writer continues, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Well, if you are familiar with your Bible, you stumble at that first sentence. Because here's a character who's king of Salem, and he's also a priest. Now the Jewish mind... Isn't used to that because he's been conditioned from the beginning that the kings came from Judah and the priests came from Levi. Two different tribes and not to cross. And there's all kinds of anecdotal examples where a king tried to give offerings or vice versa. And it was havoc. It was havoc. So, but it it makes an allusion here. This character shows up when Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So that is an allusion from Genesis 14. Let's go back to Genesis 14. Just read a few verses to get a perspective here. And in the 14th year came Sher and the kings that were with him. There's a group of kings. And they smote the Rephaims and Ashtaroth, the Karnim, and the Zimzumims and Ham, and the Emims, which Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites, and their Mount Seir. I'll give you a chart in a minute to lay this out. Don't worry about it. I can't pronounce it properly. Anyway, unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness, and they returned and came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazzer Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admah and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, the same as Zor, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim. You got five kings and four kings are about to go into battle here. With Shardel the king of Alam, and with Tidal, the king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, that's the Babylonian thing, and it might be Hammurabi in the minds of some scholars, and Arioch, the king of Elisar, four kings with five. So they got their little battle going on, okay. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain, and they took all the goods. In other words, the winners took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their victuals and went their way. So, okay, it's a battle. There were some winners and some losers. All right. But here's the key line. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. It happened that Lot was living in Sodom. These warring tribes in conquering Sodom made a mistake. With retrospect, they kidnapped Lot and his family and whatever. Big mistake. Big mistake. The Battle of the Nine Kings, you've got Shemites, Amraphel, Ariok, Shadalmer, king of Elam. Elam is a predecessor to the Persians, okay? Uh, and Tadal, king of the nations. All these are Shemites, it happens. The other kings were Bera, king of Sodom, Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah; um, Shemeber, the king of Seboim, and king of Belar. These are Hamites. Think, when you think of Ham, think of Egypt or... That part of the the geography. Shemites. So they have an ethnic difference here. But Sherdalmer is the the big cheese in all of this. The Hamites served him for 12 years. They were subservient to them. But by the 13th year, they had enough of all this. So they rebel against Sherdalmer. And he then puts them all down. And uh, he defeated and spoiled the rebels. So the Hamites were rebelling. They got clobbered. And in that getting clobbered, Lot gets kidnapped. And uh, so you get, that's, a, that's a quick snapshot of what we just read. Okay, so far? All right. And there came one that escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother Eshcol, and the brother Ener, and, and these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive... He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318 of them. Now, let's stop right there. Abraham, some scholars suspect, may have been one of the richest men on the planet Earth at that time. He had, among his servants, 318 trained warriors. These aren't just guys that usually are on a plow that were recruited to go fight. These were trained the, the context implies they were trained militarily. Anyway, these 318 are going to succeed where the five kings couldn't. See, the four that won and clobbered them and go, taken goods, they're going to fall to these 318. So these guys, you don't mess with them, right? So they pursued them to Dan, that's way up in the north, okay? And he divided himself against them. He and his servants by night smote them and pursued them to Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So Abraham's gang made it. They clobbered the bad guys. They got all the stuff back. They got us. So that's, that's the background for a very strange incident. That's, that's the reason we're getting into this, is what happens after verse 16. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of sher de la and the kings that were with him at the Valley of Sheveh, which is in the King's Dale. In other words, the king of Sodom, he was one of the losers that has been helped by Abraham beating off his enemies and bringing his stuff back. And he went out to meet him. But then we get to this strange verse. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And and he was the priest of the Most High God. Each piece of that is a mystery. We're going to get into a little bit. What do you mean he's the King of Salem? Where is that? Not all scholars agree, but most of them regard that as the site that is today Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And, uh, but he introduces bread and wine in this story. And one of the things I'm going to leave as an exercise for you to do is go through your Bible and study bread and wine from the beginning... Joseph in prison, the baker, the wine steward, bread and wine introduced there, through Melchizedek, all the way through to what? Holy Communion and the act of redemption of Messiah. But we'll move on here. See, who's the subject here? Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God possessor of heaven and earth. Very strange title, by the way, but I won't spend time on that one. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes. Right away, what's going on here? Who is a Melchizedek? Why is Abraham giving him tithes? There's no Aaronic priesthood yet, right? Because after Abraham comes Isaac and Jacob and twelve tribes and you know, Levi, and that's later, right? The Melchizedek priesthood, very, very strange stuff. We're going to have this in three chapters here in Hebrews Really, Many people regard chapters 7 through 10 of the epistle to Hebrews as the heart of the epistle. And it's, um, there is no other parallels to this section of Scripture anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a very special place. It's going to, compare two covenants and the mediators of two covenants. And that's why it's going to get very interesting here as we go. Well, the slaughter of kings, Abraham's army, of 318, rescues Lot and so forth. Melchizedek, who's a king and a priest, receives Abraham's tithes, administers bread and wine. Do you see what the writer is doing here? Do you see a parallel being drawn between Melchizedek and some other guy? What's the other guy? Huh? Jesus, exactly, exactly, because there are only well, there's only two primary kings and priests, Melchizedek and Jesus, and that's going to be highlighted as we look at Psalm 110, which is going to make that point as we go through this, and Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 is to deal with this. So he's a king of righteousness, which that's what the king of Salem, Salam, you know, a king of righteousness, king of Salem is Jerusalem, and the priest of the Most High God. He received tithes. The only mentions of him in the Old Testament is the Genesis passage we just read in Psalm 110, verse 4, which we'll read in a minute. And this is going to contrast with the priesthood as it is uh, in the mind of, the, in, uh, of, of a Jew in Judaism. His readers, the readers of this epistle, are Jews sometime between A.D. 32, Christ's ministry, and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It's in that 38-year period that these Jews are really upset, not sure what to do, that this epistle is aimed at. But see, a Jewish mind separates the priesthood of Levi and the kingship of Judah. So that makes Melchizedek a strange paradox to the Jewish mind. And there are these two elements by Melchizedek, bread and wine, which to a New Testament reader immediately suggest the Lord's Supper. But let's move on here. Down to verse 2, we're making progress. To whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being in the interpretation the king of righteousness, and after that, king of Salem, which is king of peace. See, here now in verse 2, the writer has actually interpreted those two titles as what they suggest. peace, uh, Righteousness and peace. Always in that order, by the way. Righteousness has to come before peace. And Abraham gave him tithes. That's very strange if you understand how a Jew venerates Abraham. I mean, he's up there. But Abraham is subordinate to Melchizedek somehow, and a king of righteousness, and then king of peace. That uh, righteousness always comes first, peace next. Now we get a clue here, by the way, that's going to be important. When you get to Joshua, he is going to have he's going to be conquering the land, and his adversary is a king that unites a group against him. That's the king of Jerusalem called Adonai Zedek, Lord of Righteousness. But it's a false title. He's the adversary of Joshua, and he gets eventually beat down. But, so Zedek means king, uh, the, uh, the, uh, excuse me, it means righteousness, and uh, it's a false title. But it's also clearly a Jebusite dynastic name, and we'll come to that in a minute. But the Hebrew writer of the Epistle goes on and says, Speaking of Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without descent, that is without a genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. This is a verse that many people get confused by. They assume that what this is saying is that Melchizedek is a supernatural person, having no beginning and no end. No, that's not, he's drawing a parallel, a type, an analogy. I'll get to that in a little bit. There is no father or mother recorded. That doesn't mean he didn't have one, but in the text there is no father and mother, and he doesn't have any genealogy. There's no marking of his beginning nor his end. So idiomatically, it fits a purpose of regarding him as a type of Christ. Anticipatory model, if you will. Anticipatory model doesn't mean it's the same thing. It's just suggestive of, in other words. And uh, made like the Son of God, he abideth. Pre, uh, and Melchizedek, it would seem, is a king forever. Because never, it's never mentioned where he ends, is the point. So there's no genealogy record. Is basically, I mean. It doesn't mean he didn't have parents. It just means that they're not recorded. They're not relevant to the the, the perspective of the writer here. And uh, he had no predecessor. He'll have no successor is the idea. There are six similarities, at least, between Melchizedek and the Messiah. Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. He was king of Salem. And and the last part of his name, Zedek, is a Jebusite dynastic name. And then Joshua encounters that with Adonai, Zedek, or the Lord of Righteousness. But he's also a priest, he's a king and a priest, and that makes him distinctive. The only other one you find in the Bible like that is Jesus Christ. One can argue that we are, or we have the opportunity to be, rule with him and be a king and priest as as the 24 elders announce themselves as being in Revelation 5, but that's a whole other thing. His name and title mentions the two things about his reign, righteousness and peace. And these two characteristics are also mentioned of the reign of the Messiah. And you all remember this from your Christmas cards, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, and so forth. So, okay. A second similarity, the Melchizedekian priesthood issued in blessing in that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So, the the fact that both are a source of blessing. Now, how the Messiah's priesthood will be a source of blessings is going to be discussed later in this chapter, so I won't spend time on it now. Third thing, the giving of tithes is a recognition of superiority. You don't give tithes to someone junior, you give tithes to someone senior spiritually, okay? So Abraham, by tithing to Melchizedek, was acknowledging or recognizing Melchizedek's positional superiority. Are we together so far? And it's at this point in verse 2 that he also, uh, the writer, explains the meaning of the names. But see, the fact that Jesus functions as a Melchizedekian kind of priest shows his superiority over any other priesthood. And he's going to develop this here with Levi in a minute. Melchizedek was an independent high priest, as is Jesus. His priesthood was individual. In that he appeared on the scene, and this, all we know about him is that he was a priest of the Most High God. There's no mention of mother or father genealogy. Genealogy was not relevant to Melchizedek. It's very relevant to the Aaronic priesthood, because the way you became a priest under, in, uh, under the Levitical system is you had to be a descendant of Aaron. Okay? And so, ancestry was not important for Melchizedek, and that's part of what's going on here. The appointment to Melchizedek's priesthood was independent of human relations. No genealogical requirement. That's not true of being a priest in the Levitical system. Because unless you could prove that you were a descendant of Aaron, you were disqualified from the priesthood. And there were several times when they returned from Babylon, the Babylon captivity. Many claimed to be uh, a part of the office of priesthood, but some could not prove that they had direct descendants of Aaron and were thus disqualified. You had to be a Cohen, a name, which is a descendant of Aaron. Okay. The fourth one of the genealogy is not important for the Melchizedek priesthood. And, and by the way, there's no record, this is interesting, there's no record of birth or death of Melchizedek. That doesn't mean he didn't, he wasn't born, didn't die. That's what it it's not recorded. And that means as a type, that's significant. Because we're dealing with a model here, an anticipatory type. See, both events occurred. He obviously was born and he died. But the fact there's no record of him allows the Holy Spirit to use this as an exemplar, as an illuminating example of what he's really getting at. The Melchizedek, Melchizedekian priesthood was timeless. We don't know when it began, when it ended. A Levitical priest served very definitively from the age of 25 to the age of 50 and had to be replaced. And It had a definite beginning and definite end. There's no mention of the beginning or end of the Melchizedekian. Melchizedek uh, priesthood. And uh, so, in that sense, the Holy Spirit saying Melchizedek was like a model or a type of the Son of God. And because, as far as the record of the Word of God is, it, Melchizedekian priesthood was timeless and there's no record of it ending. Now, the Melchizedekian priesthood was all inclusive that it administered apparently to everyone within that region, it wasn't just Jewish. The Levitical priesthood was limited to, had a limited ministry just to Israel. That's another difference. What's Jesus Christ's ministry? Just to Israel? No. Universally. And uh, uh, Melchizedekian Mel- Mel- priesthood was universal, so it was Christ. Jesus also has a universal priesthood. Now, because of this background, the, whole, the writer is using this to make a rhetorical example, uh, get, communicate. That's led to speculations. that Because there, there's no recorded birth or death... Some think Melchizedek was Shem. Shem was still alive then, in Abraham's time, so is it possible that he was Shem? No, I don't think so, because we know Shem's genealogy. That would puncture the model, if you will. Was Melchizedek an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ? There are many speculators say, well, that was Christ in the Old Testament making an appearance, because they get confused. They're confusing the type with the antitype. Was he a theophany? That is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Don't think so, for a lot of reasons. His priesthood, the, the, what Hebrews points out, his priesthood was after the similitude of Melchizedek, Christ was. Well, was Melchizedek a celestial being? No. He's described as a man in, in Hebrews 7.4. So those popular speculations are punctured if you stick with the text. What about this business, the most popular one is that somehow it's a pre-incarnate Christ. The text does not use the adjective that would describe Melchizedek and his being in in, uh, essence to be like the Son of God. Instead, it uses a participle, meaning that Jesus was similar to Melchizedek only in the likeness of of the biblical statement. In other words, the grammar would suggest otherwise. The word for being made in the Greek is to cause a model to pass off an image or shape like it, to express itself in it to copy, to produce a facsimile. We shouldn't confuse the facsimile from the real thing is, is what the grammar is indicating. And this term is found only here in the New Testament. Second reason, it states that Melchizedek was like the Son of God. It does not say that he was the Son of God in the Old Testament. A third reason, the second passage where he is mentioned, that's in Psalm 110 verse 4, distinguishes Melchizedek from the Messiah. That also argues against them being the same. One of the prerequisites for the priesthood was that the priest had to be human. A priest had to be a representative of humanity, so it had to be human. So at this point, back there in Genesis 14, Christ wasn't qualified because he wasn't born of the Virgin yet to be human. You with me? So he may appear occasionally in the Old Testament in what they call a theophany, but that's not Melchizedek was not one of those. Jesus did not become a man until the Incarnation where he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. So before that time, he appeared in the form of a man, but was not an actual man. It's an important point.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.